Well, a good morning to all. I'll, um, I'll move on to this one in a moment. Uh, do have your Bibles open at uh, pages 80 and 81, uh, the second part of that reading that uh, Andrea brought for us, um, because we're going to be looking through it, uh, trying to answer the question, really, what is the right way to live? What is the right way to live? Um, how should I respond in this situation or that situation? Or we might uh, phrase, or rephrase it, how can I live to please God? Um, it's a pretty important question, isn't it? It's a question that each new generation asks. And it's a question, the answer to which will impact every aspect of our living. And it's a question we're going to aim, at least in part, to answer this morning. Uh, but for the moment, I want you to put yourself in the place of those Israelites uh, gathered round the mountain at Sinai. Uh, they'd been released from slavery just a matter of weeks beforehand. And before that, they were used to external constraints on their living. Somebody else had been telling them what to do. Uh, they'd been serving Pharaoh and serving him on his terms. But what now? Who should they serve? What does it mean for them to be free? Now, two weeks ago, we heard about the giving of the Ten Commandments. They're God's demands for his people and a beautiful revelation of his character. They're part of the answer to the question that Exodus poses over and over again. It's first put by Pharaoh in chapter 5 and verse 2, and he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And all the way through Exodus, we get answers to that question. And part of that answer is the Ten Commandments. They give us the big picture. They give us the overall headlines. But what about tomorrow? What about this particular situation I'm having to, to face? How should I behave in those everyday situations? Is violence okay, so long as I don't actually kill anybody? Uh, God's okay with me going to the local faith healer, right? I forgot to get the car properly serviced and I caused an accident. Oh well, these things happen. All of these situations are covered in chapters uh, 21 to 24 of Exodus. Uh, and by the way, no, it's not okay. And wrong, you can't worship God and hang on to old beliefs. And you're liable, so pay up. Now many of us have lived with the Ten Commandments all our lives. Uh, our law code, from the time of Alfred the Great, has been based on them. But for those, those Israelites, they were new. Some explanation was needed. Some unpacking of what God said. And chapters 21 to 23 illustrate what those commands look like in particular cases. So we refer to them as case law. We do the same in this country, don't we? If someone does something wrong, you look and see... Has someone done something similar? Well, we'll sort it out on that basis. 
It's not meant to be an exhaustive list, but an illustrative um, list to show us the sorts of things that might happen. In fact, one way of looking at these chapters is as a commentary on the Ten Commandments. Uh, did you notice that the first thing that Andrea read was about altars and not making fancy altars? Well, that must be pretty close to don't make for yourself a graven image as it used to be. Um, don't make any idols. Don't create, uh, follow worship in that way. But I want us to focus on these verses from chapter 22 and 23. Now, the reason for that is that this, there's a section here in, in amongst the, uh, the case laws, and it's bounded by a phrase. There's like bookends at both ends of it. I don't know whether you spotted it, but in chapter 22 and verse 21, it says, Do not ill-treat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. And in chapter 23 and verse 9, it says, do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. So we've got two bookends linking the things in between those bookends, and that's, that's what we're going to be focusing mostly on. Now, the word translated foreigner, in some versions of the Bible, it says um, stranger, and in some it says sojourner. Um, the meaning of the word is really it's somebody who's not quite at home, not, not necessarily an outcast, but not, not quite at home. If you sojourn somewhere, it's not your proper place to live. You might be working away from home. Um, but when we combine it with the um, number of references to the poor and the needy, to the widow and the fatherless in this section, what we've got is we've got case law about how to live towards the most vulnerable in society. The most vulnerable in society. And perhaps we could sum up the message, the whole message, as live with generosity and justice towards the poor. Now, if we look at that in two sections, our, our first point would then be live with generosity towards the poor. Now, look at chapter 22 and verses 21 to 27. You'll see that it's about uh, widows and the fatherless. Verse 22, do not take advantage of the widow and the fatherless. If you do, I will certainly hear their cry. Um, <clears throat> we've got these instructions here about being generous towards the poor. Now, when it talks of widows and fatherless, the writer is not saying, it's not asking us to go, oh, poor dear. It's not bereavement that is at question here. In that society, as in many societies now, there is, was no welfare system. Without a husband or a father, a woman or a child had no economic security. Uh, it was easy for others to take advantage of them. Um, and to exploit them. But, says Yahweh, the great I am who revealed himself to Moses, don't do that. Don't oppress them or mistreat them. The wid widow and the fatherless have no voice. 
They can't influence events. And yet, notice how God responds. If you do take advantage of them and they cry out, I will certainly hear their cry. They have no voice in society, but God hears their voice. In learning how we should live, we discover something about God. The God revealed in the Old Testament is far from being a severe judge. Sometimes we think that, don't we? We think that in the Old Testament, God is severe and judgmental, and in the New Testament, he's loving. But no, nothing could be further from the truth. Far from being a severe judge, we have here one who cares for the vulnerable, one who hears their cry. And that's followed, if you go through the verses, by two ifs. In verse 25, if you lend money, and in verse 26, if you take your neighbour's cloak. Now in, those, in that setting, it was only the poor who would have asked for a loan. Uh, we, we deal with loans all the time, don't we now? But in that situation, the only reason for asking for a loan was because your money had run out, because you didn't have enough to buy food. Um, and remember that even now, many people wake up in the morning and have no money. They have no money in their pocket, no money in the bank. And they have to earn their money in order to eat at the end of the day. Well, if you were in that situation, if your husband or your father was dead and you had no means of support and you didn't get any work that day, you would have no money. A loan would be the only answer. Well, that's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? Um, it's a recipe for falling into utter destitution. An unexpected need might push people over. And of course, it doesn't just happen in other countries. It happens in the UK today. Many people turn to payday loans, don't they? Or they go to loan sharks. Um, but God's way is set out in verse 25. If you lend money, charge no interest. Well, that's revolutionary, isn't it? If you lend money, charge no interest. Um, and that would mean that the poor would have a means of, um, of support. You can't be a Christian and a loan shark. We can't go as far as saying you can't be a Christian and not charge interest, but you can't be a Christian and a loan shark. The second if is about security. When we give loans to people, we usually say, okay, what are you going to give me to prove that you're going to pay the loan back? Um, and some of us may at some points in our, in our history have signed our house and said, if I don't pay the loan back, you can take my house. It's a bit extreme, isn't it? But the poor didn't have very much. And so a cloak, a cloak was given as security. And when do you give the cloak back? When do you give the security back? When the loan's paid? No. You give it back when it's needed. You give it back at the end of the day so they can wrap themselves up in it and have a good night's sleep. The message here is live in generosity towards the poor. This stuff matters to God. Just in passing, notice, 
that it's not about grand gestures. It's not about you know, giving away thousands of pounds. It's about giving them their cloak back. It's small stuff. It's everyday stuff. And it's how we live in the small everyday stuff that God is interested in. So, live in generosity towards the poor. Our second point is to live with justice towards the poor. If you go down to um, chapter 23, you'll notice that in verses 1 to 3 and in verses 6 to 8, we're in the law court. Okay. (laughs) Voices from above. Um, We're in the law court. In between, there's verses 4 and 5, and we'll come back to those in a moment. Now, as you read those verses in chapter 23, don't think that they're just a random selection. They're very far from that. In fact, verses 1 to 3 are mirrored by verses 6 to 8. Just follow through with me for a moment. Uh, Verse 1 says, Do not tell lies to get someone in trouble. No false reports. Verse 2 says, Don't pervert justice. Um, Don't go with the crowd. Verse 3 says, don't show favouritism to the poor. Well, that doesn't sound so good, does it? Uh, It doesn't sound like good news for the poor. But, hold on. Um, Verse 6, do not deny the poor justice. Well, that's better. And it's a mirror of verse 3. It's the other side of the coin. Verse 7, no false charges. Well, Isn't that another way of saying, don't pervert the course of justice, which was verse 2? And then, no bribes. Why not? Uh, Well, they twist the words of the innocent. That's a bit like verse 1, isn't it? Not being a malicious witness. So we've got things about being a witness. We've got things about not perverting the justice. Then we've got things about the poor. It mirrors each other. And when we find a structure like that in the Bible, often the bit in the middle is the most important bit. Verse 4 and 5. What have verse 4 and 5 got to do with the others? Suddenly it's about oxes and donkeys. Um, Now, what is it about donkeys? Uh, Is it that, that is God so concerned about donkeys? Now, there's nothing wrong with being concerned about donkeys. Um, whenever it was, was it last year, uh, Joy and I and Liz and Andre were down in Devon, very close to a donkey sanctuary. Uh, I did not know there were as many shapes and sizes as don- of donkeys. Um, neither did I realise that there were so many donkeys abandoned in Britain. Um, and they do a good work, and I'm not knocking it, uh, especially if it was free to go in, and it kept the kids occupied for a, a, a good morning, twice. So donkeys are good, Um, and God is concerned about animal welfare, and some of the other case law, both in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, speaks of care of animals, but here, it's not the donkey's welfare he's concerned about. It's who the donkey belongs to. Just look what what it says. If If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, 
fallen down under its load. Do not leave it with them. The other case law that in this section is really all about your neighbour and it's about those who are part of your people. And suddenly we've got enemies and those who hate you. God has moved up to another level. In, this, in these laws about how we should treat one another, it doesn't just apply to those we like or even those who are like us. It includes even our enemies and those who hate us. We're not talking about simple neighbourliness here. What we're talking about is a call to live radically for the good of others. Now, if any of this is beginning to sound familiar, we shouldn't be surprised. Um, Jesus was a Jew. He grew up knowing these commands. Um, and remember what he said uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, where in Matthew chapter uh, 5, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemies, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Showing love towards our enemies, taking care of the poor. This is an important aspect of living a life pleasing to God. A life which reflects his character. So far then, the instructions seem clear. Live with generosity and justice towards the poor. Now I don't want you to miss how revolutionary those rules were in their care for the poor in that society. In many ancient societies, the vulnerable, they were simply left to scrape what they could together. And we've seen um, from Mike's um, pictures and so on, in many societies that is still the case. But for God's people, reflecting his compassion, there was to be care and equity. But these were rules given primarily to God's people. It wouldn't be appropriate to try and force this law onto a secular nation. Our application is primarily for us, the gathered people of God. The Israelites were to care for the most vulnerable amongst them. So too are we. Um, in James and chapter 2, we read... What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister, that is one of your fellow Christians, is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Our primary application is to those of the of the fellowship of believers. 
Think of the many one another's, though, in the New Testament as well. Our faith is not just an individual thing between us and God. It includes our relationship with one another. Um, Let us not then, not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So, um, so let's not think uh, that this doesn't apply to us. Our responsibility is clear. Needs within the church community should be met by each of us living generously and with justice towards one another. God cares for each and every member of the fellowship and so should we. And that attitude should then spill out to those around us. Now, before before we conclude, we do have to ask one other question. Why? Why should we act like this? And I believe it's here that we often go wrong. Look again at our passage. I've talked about generosity. I've talked about justice. Uh, If you were... Uh, looking down, you'll find that I missed a chunk out. And that is chapter 22, verse 28 to the end. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. You are to be my holy people. So do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. We have blaspheming, cursing, offerings, throwing meat to the dogs. It all seems a bit strange, weird even. But I think the key is in verse 31. You are to be my holy people. This section is slap bang in the middle of our passage. It's important. The mention of the firstborn would have taken the Israelites back to that night of their deliverance when the firstborn of the Egyptians died. And for them, it wasn't very far in the past. The Israelite firstborn were saved by the blood of a lamb daubed around the door. This deliverance, this redemption, set them apart. And that's what holy means. It means set apart. It means to be different. Living any old how would not do. New standards now applied to them. Meat you found by the roadside would not have been slaughtered in the proper manner. Don't eat it. Don't blaspheme God by saying you follow him and living as everyone else does. The incentive to live like this is not that it's better for us, though it is, It's not self-interest in case we become poor. And crucially, it's not so that we can get into God's good books. The mistake we so often make is to think that if I can try a bit harder, it'll be good enough for God. I'll earn his forgiveness. I'll be acceptable and able to stand before him. 
where nothing could be further from the truth. Look again at those two bookends. Do not take advantage of the widow and the fatherless. Sorry, do not ill-treat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners, because you were foreigners in Egypt. You were foreigners in Egypt. You were. Not anymore. That's not their situation now. You've been set free. You've been brought out. You've been redeemed. That rescue didn't come as a response to good living. It didn't come because they kept the law. Before the Ten Commandments are given, we read in chapter 20 and verses 1 and 2, and God spoke all these words. And what's the first thing God says? It's not, don't have any gods before me. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. They are already saved. They are already redeemed. And then the commandments follow. Our incentive then is, is simple. We've been rescued as God's people, so we should live in the light of that. Our character and our lives should reflect God's character. Just as those Israelites had been bought out of slavery by the blood of a lamb, so we are rescued by Jesus' blood shed on the cross. All they did was stay inside while judgment passed over. All we need to do is hide in Christ so that God sees us in his righteousness. It's not by keeping the law that we are acceptable. It's because we've been accepted that we look to the law for wisdom in living and to the Holy Spirit for power to live God's way. Please don't get things the wrong way round. Trying to keep the law to get right with God will never work. It will either leave you despairing or, um, and guilt-ridden, or you'll become self-righteous and miss your need for grace and mercy. Our salvation is solely through Jesus' death. His blood shed to make peace with God possible. Our part is simply to trust in what he has done for us. Yet the law still continues to be relevant to us, not as a way to be saved, but as revealing God's heart, what God is concerned about, and giving us wisdom to live by. It gives timeless principles that are as relevant today as they were 3,500 years ago. Where does all this leave us as we draw to a conclusion? Perhaps we can sum up by saying, live with generosity and justice towards the poor because you are God's holy redeemed people. Or maybe it's better to put it the right way round and say, you are God's holy redeemed people. Therefore, live with generosity and justice towards the poor. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your word is truth. And your word spoken even thousands of years ago is still living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that as we read your word, you will use it uh, to divide our hearts, to rid us of um, apathy and uh, selfishness, and to drive us, first of all, to the cross, and then to rejoice in the redemption that is ours, and then to seek to live lives which are pleasing to you. Father, we thank you that this, this morning you have drawn our attention throughout the service to the vulnerable and those in need. And we pray that uh, you will touch our hearts, uh, that we won't go away and forget that we've looked in the mirror, but uh, we will change our living, change our behaviour. We pray, Father, that uh, we know that that will only happen uh, through the moving of your Holy Spirit, applying your word to our heart. And we thank you uh, for his action in our life. And uh, we want to be open to what you're saying to us. And we want to be those whose life as individuals and whose life together as the church reflects your righteousness and your goodness that others may be drawn to you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.